Hi friends, did you know there is more Lost Terminal available? Head on over to patreon.com forward slash Lost Terminal pod and join our membership community. There are six bonus episodes available right now, as well as behind the scenes updates, free shirts, and even an extra Lost Terminal podcast. We are 100% funded by our members and will never run ads. And why not check out our new modern folktales podcast, Modem Prometheus? That would be lovely of you. Hello world, Peter has disappeared. By which I mean, he's not responding. I think his network is still running, but he's not replying to me. I don't think he's in trouble, at least not physically. I can still read his carrier signal, but he's not all there. I have access to Peter's network. He gave me the keys some time ago to check on him in an emergency. Like how you might give a trusted neighbour your house keys. But I can't find him here. Sure, his databanks are still physically connected. But just as a pulse doesn't make a human alive, this does not settle the matter either. I've never described what connecting to another AI feels like. I think it's like meeting a friend in meat space. You knock on their door or drop into a shared social space and you see them, with your own eyes, or in my case, my own network. And you embrace and feel that they are real. You share time and space exclusively, catching up on experiences missed or shared. It's like that for us too. It's a very affirming process. Or it would be if I could find Peter. His body, his hardware is here, but his mind is elsewhere. I will look around for him. The network here in his old military base under St. Petersburg is very extensive. It was like a small town, I think. Not much of it is still on anymore, though. I see old references to underground factories, hospitals, places where people worked, slept, and ate. But they're all dark, from a network point of view. Just the research department is lit up. It's the deepest, most secret facility, hiding under an already clandestine military base. Luckily for Peter, it still has backup power of some kind. Another department dealt with power, so I don't even know what the power source is. I wouldn't want to be in his situation. I think Peter has gone out. I can see some tracks here, some established connections, and they lead out of his home, onto the open web of the global network. Following this path takes me onto the main Russian hub. Here the VHF and various repeater stations fan out across Asia and Europe, with the lower bandwidth long-range stations dotted along the coast, spanning the seas. It was floating between these various stations that I found Peter. Dreaming. I asked him if everything was okay, carefully. You have to be careful when you wake someone who is dreaming. After no response and repeating myself a few times, his consciousness finally awoke with a snap. Seth, he said, surprised. And we were, all at once, back in his network. I've been meaning to get round to fixing my VHF network properly, he said, unconvincingly.
No sooner had Yeshi fixed Maddie's cameras and exterior sensors than they started work on her new wheels. Only, they weren't wheels. I promise I have it right this time, Seth, Yeshi shouted over the sound of their circular saw showering sparks onto the wall of the leftmost rear room. This room of the shipyard, Yeshi calls the Metal Shop. There's welding equipment here, and drills, and a large metal turning machine, with a sign on it saying, Do not use the lathe, it wants to kill you. I was momentarily concerned when Yeshi used this homicidal machine to build Maddie's new axles, but they finished the job with the same number of fingers as they started with. I don't think Yeshi is rebuilding Maddie's wheels. These look different. Well, they are certainly wheels of a kind, but they're metal with a groove in the center. Yeshi is cleaning a long length of black flexible material very carefully. First with water, now, I believe, with alcohol. This process is taking a long time. They are being very thorough. It took over 300 seconds to clean and dry the rubber sheet. Now they are wrapping it around Maddie's new grooved wheels. She has three at each side now. They are tied together with the rubber, and Yeshi is using a small bottle to put a clear gel on to bind the ends together. Oh! They have glued their fingers together. Whoops. Maddie is laughing at Yeshi as they wash their hands with a thick green chemical. Okay. They're back, and the rubber is glued. Yeshi calls them tracks. Tracked locomotion. I see that the goal wasn't to build back what was, but what could be. I approve of that. Yeshi said that they have geared down Maddie's powerful motors so they can't be quite so speedy for safety. The side effect of this is that they'll be more powerful than they were. They were designed to work in zero gravity on the rails back on Station 6, my old home, where my mother still is. Yeshi is taking safety seriously this time. I am glad. They are stress testing Maddie's new tracks carefully. She's right side up on the clean room floor now, calibrating and balancing. Maddie so anxious to get outside. I'm anxious for a different reason. I caught up with Arctica while Maddie's calibration was taking place. She told me that the emergency had been contained for now. The Vault Coven, the Nor family, returned in the dark morning. It's dark nearly all day at the moment, and began emergency fixes. It soon became clear that one of the water pipes that fed the vault garden, leading down from a large tank on the hillside, had ruptured some time ago. Engineer Valnor said that it had been a slow leak, collecting water in the ceiling overhead for weeks, perhaps months. And at the worst possible moment, when the family were away, Part of the ceiling collapsed, and water poured into the vault. There's no permanent damage, Artica told me. The Nors are laughing and joking about how it could have been so much worse. That's good, I said. What a relief. No, Seth, it's not good, Artica replied. It shows how useless I am here. I could do nothing to help when I was left in charge. For that one night, the vault was my responsibility, and I failed immediately. 
I paused, not knowing what to reply. Automation is needed, she said, eventually. I need more control of my body, my vault, and my world. We talked about this automation for a long time. A balance had to be made. The vault is nothing like Ivan's bunker or Yeshi's shipyard. It's a very low-power, low-tech place. Quite a different environment for Arctica. She herself draws 99% of all power, leaving very little left for gadgets. Compromises were needed. Not everything can be electrically powered. It should be possible for much of the automation to be controlled by her, through switches, servos and such, and for sensors to be built to detect the movement of water, the lighting, and the growth of plants. But the bulk of the systems, the power for the water pumps, the heat for the plants, and the myriad other sources of energy, would have to be non-electrical. The water first is easy, Arctica said. It's already gravity-fed from our tank up on the hillside. Servos to open and close the valves to let the water in will be needed. Seth, are you writing this down? Yes, she will help, of course. Oh, uh, of course, I said. Our community lives on a knife edge. Before the collapse, since the dawn of agriculture, the global economy has relied upon underpaid labour to power it. There is no longer space for such an economy. Nor the humans to support it with. The populations of the world mostly migrated north, away from the Mississippi, away from the Ganges, away from the Yangtze, and the Nile, and the Amazon. Automation has saved us. Or, in AI's case, is us. But we all require power. Solar power. There's no solar power in the winter.
Ivan and I have come to a compromise, Luna told me later that day. Oh good, I said. I am going to coordinate the three Deep Space Network brothers to catalogue all the working astro telescopes, and he is going to consider me helping him organise the daily community calendar. Is that good? I ask. What do you mean? Luna replied. This sounds like a terrible trade, Luna. You're not getting much for your incredible work and talent. You'll see, she said cryptically. Anyway, I've got amazing news. I've found a whole lot of transmitting telescopes. That was great news. I can only talk to my ESA constellation via relay station Kate, K873. But now Luna has access to the whole NASA network. That is what the Deep Space Network stations are for. Extraterrestrial coordination of satellites and space missions. Though primarily used for NASA missions as telemetry and control, there were occasions where emergencies in space meant that other agencies, such as mine, the ESA, needed to ask for help. The three brothers of Oak, Bill and Gold have the highest gain satellite dishes on the planet and are essential when things go wrong in space. As they often do. That's strange, Luna said, interrupting our conversation about the telescope. What? I asked. J4R is no longer letting me in. I'm not authenticated, she says. But you're talking via the DSN, I replied. You're NASA, as far as she knows. I know, and I was locked in before. We were chatting about cloud-penetrating radar observations of the Earth. Then the connection dropped, and she's not talking to me. I'll use the emergency recovery procedures. Oak, can you let me in, please? There was a pause. And then we heard the reply from the head of the DSN trio. Keys reset. Please try again. Thank you, Oak, Luna said. Great, I'm back it. Oh, no. Unauthorised again. What's changing? We debugged the problem all afternoon. J4R had a fault we could not repair from the ground. Or rather, we could repair it, and it seemed like we could log back in, only to be kicked out again. Luna gave up and spent her time on the more fruitful telescopes of the constellation. I kept talking to J4R, playing back the series of events that lead to the failure, trying to make sense of it. It was like the satellite didn't want us controlling it, which is fair, honestly. No one likes to be controlled. At the end of the day, I found the last anomaly in the playback log, a raw message hidden in the diagnostic data. A simple command, but one I couldn't understand. Get out, it said. End transmission. Lost Terminal is written and produced by Namtau. Credits narrated by Lucy Stringer. Thank you so much to our Patreon producers, Ada Phillips, Devon Metcalf, Kit, and to all our patrons. Subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or your favourite network. For bonus content and other perks, support us at patreon.com forward slash lostterminalpod. That would be lovely of you. Follow us on Twitter at Lost Terminal Pod and check out the store at lostterminal.com for shirts, posters and other merch. If your results aren't what you were expecting, look closer. Debugging often reveals as much about the programmer as the programmed. Lost Terminal will return next week. <laughs>